This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Hey, uh, in the few minutes we have, would you open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 39? While you're turning there, I wanted to share this story with you. If you don't know, we have two people right now in Asia. I'm not going to say the name. Uh, Mark, uh, I'll say their names. Mark and Eric are there right now. Uh, Over this past week, over 30,000 people have joined them in outdoor uh, events. The army of the, the government shut them down. But they have not met Mark and Eric before, so they just went to a different city and did it there. Um, And without going into too much detail other than that we have very much, these aren't numbers we're just making up out of thin air, Uh, over 11,000 Muslims have turned from Islam and turned to Jesus in just this week alone. And when he stood on a stage a few days ago in front of a large crowd that estimated at 20,000 people, blind eyes were open, people were getting out of wheelchairs, deaf ears were opened. When you stand on a stage in that country and say, Jesus is Lord and Allah is not, it turns out to be incredibly helpful when someone gets out of a wheelchair, when the town blind guy is not blind anymore. It's amazing. The Bible says these signs will, signs will follow those who believe. We get in trouble in America because we're following signs. But that's not what he said. They'll follow you. So if you want to see a miracle, need one. So we, we have seen that this week. We'll get some reports. And at the same time, uh, with all that going on, more families have gone free this week. This family here is Mudasser. He's 31. His wife uh, is 28. Is Roma. Five children. Uh, when he Mudasser was a child, his mother passed away. His father was a brick kiln slave. But then his father became sick, and he ultimately died, which means that he now has inherited his father's debt, and now he is a slave. So he has been a slave for uh, 16 years, I think. No, six years. I'm get, I might get the typo wrong here. Um, here's, I'll, I'll jump to here. At the age of 19, he got married to Roma, and he had been a slave for five years by that point. I'm getting some of this math wrong. But they've been blessed since then with five children. And with the birth of each child, of course, they had to add to their loan because they didn't have money to pay for their birth. Uh, he has said that when they're released that he will start a tailoring shop. He had already learned to be a tailor. That was his skill before he was taken into slavery. Uh, and so once that happens, he's going to be able to open his and go back to his old line of work and to build a tailor shop. And uh, we have the ability to get them the equipment that they need. So the truth is, is that that actually happened yesterday. So he went free uh, yesterday. The guy that's facing us is the kiln owner who is making sure that every last rupee is counted. If you are a rupee short, they're not going anywhere. You've got to go down to the rupee ATM and make sure you've got it all. Uh, and here's what's really cool. So this family, they've moved into their new home. And, uh, and we were able to also, part of what we were able to do, is that's, the picture's cut off, but that is a sewing machine uh, that is going for them for their tailor shop. And so that happened 
uh, yesterday. And while over there are guys that are working with um, the, these uh, outdoor things, he's, they were stopped by a few of the families. Hey, Conduit, we are visiting a family that's been freed here. We're at their home and just got to see them, say hi to them, love on them, and visit their business. And um, what a privilege. Thanks so much. And right next door to that is his business. We are. We're in his business. Right next door to his house. Here's Pastor Mark. Just Mark is sufficient. Or just Mark is sufficient. You sound familiar? (laughs) This is amazing. So from a slave on a kiln to a business owner. That was yesterday. God is good. He just is. And he's so good because he, gets, he lets us get to be a part of, of this. And I believe, man, I believe, I believe, I believe that revival is happening in places like this. You talk about I was lost, now I'm found. I was a slave and now I'm free. We're hearing stories now of some of these that are now free that are preaching the gospel and starting churches and doing their own freeing of their comrades. So God is, uh, God is good and we get to be a small part of that. I would ask one more thing before we start in Genesis 39 and that's I leave on Tuesday for Haiti. Um, we're not going to be talking about it publicly and online. Um, there's some things down there right now that are more dangerous than what they have been in the past. But I just felt like I got a word from the Lord that I'm supposed to go. And you get some chances in your life of following Jesus that you get to decide, am I going to live in fear or am I going to live in faith? Am I going to let faith, uh, fear steal from what God has? We weren't able to go last year. Uh, we had a Bible graduation for the Bible school. We weren't able to go. We got coroned. Uh, we had it this year. And I just feel like I could preach a better sermon than two years of Bible school with them than when I show up in the middle of when everybody's being told to leave, that we're going to show up, that we're going to preach a sermon without saying a word. And that is our God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is Jehovah. He is better than voodoo. He is bigger than Allah. And we have nothing to fear. So we're going in and I will be out in just a few days. We won't talk much about it while I'm there, but I'll be able to report next week. And I just believe with all my heart that these, uh, this, these students that are graduating this week. These are young men and women that are full of the Holy Ghost. Man, they are full of faith and they are ready to go to the mountains of Haiti and plant churches and take Satan and whip his rear end all over Haiti. So anyway, that's happening this year. And I only say that and share that just asking, uh, would you consider uh, and, and, and praying for me while I'm, uh, while I'm there? Now, have you found Genesis 39? Because if not, that's honestly on you because it's Genesis like I, it's not like Habakkuk right I got you at least to one that you could find uh, for the sake of time I'm not going to read this passage in its entirety but I wanted to remind you that where we are in this journey that Joseph has now been sold into slavery that Joseph is now uh, owned by a Egyptian captain of the guard in uh, in, in Egypt and this is, as we've talked about in the, in the weeks before, I encourage you to go back and listen. Joseph is a prophet who is arising from hard times that make strong people. If you remember a few weeks back, we started with the idea that hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. 
And Joseph's brothers were weak men creating hard times. And we have a choice in hard times of whether we become like Judah and the brothers or whether we become like Joseph. Those are your only two choices. Uh, Where we are right now in 2020 is a time where weak men are creating, have created hard times. Are we going to follow Joseph's pattern or are we going to follow Judah's pattern? Let's follow Joseph, right? See, Joseph is in a situation where he's going to make some decisions. And this is the thing that we're going to sort of follow today. That Joseph was holding on to, he was maintaining principles that were God's principles. He was, it was this truth that Joseph was maintaining. And I'm going to explain to you in a minute why it was even more amazing than you think it was. And number two, that just like us, the price that Joseph paid for following God's precepts and principles, there's a cost for it. They're not free. There's a, in a world built on lies, living for truth is going to cost us something. And then we're going to ask the question, with all that in mind, what's true about God? The first thing is this, and that's that Joseph held on to a truth, to, to a principle, to a precept of God that, that he was maintaining that was about sexual ethic, about sexual morals, about sexual identity in a culture that had none of that. If you do any research at all on ancient Egyptian history and the sexual ethics of the Egyptian culture, they were living pretty fascinatingly. Kind of like a New Orleans vibe with a twist of San Francisco and a whole lot of France. Like it was a strange across the board vibe going on in Egypt. And Joseph, I mean, I don't know about you, but do you feel like I'm the only one in my work? I'm the only one at my school? I feel like I'm the only one that's following these. It feels lonely on social media. I'm the only one. But Joseph was the only one. Like he didn't just feel like it. He was the only one. And in to this Potiphar's wife, if you know the story, it says that Joseph was, was, he was a lot like me. He was young and well-built and handsome. It's a heavy cross to bear. But he, he, Potiphar's wife sees him and says, you know, I'd like some of that. Joseph's a young guy, okay? The fact that he held on to this, the fact that he resisted this is utterly fascinating to me. And he did it because, and I put this specifically here, because I think that Joseph understood that this wasn't just a sin against Potiphar. It wasn't just a sin against himself. He probably could have gotten away with it. But he doesn't say that. He said it was a sin against God. She didn't even believe in God. She didn't believe in his God. So what is it that would motivate him in this sin against God? Why was that even more so than not a sin against her? And I want to show you why. I think there's three things that you can look at from the way that God designed us as humans to be that are actually for our flourishing. 
in the same way that someone who creates something, whether it's a, a drone helicopter or a, 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 a kitchen item, the air fryer, for instance, that I've been uh, praising so much lately. There are, there are certain things that the air fryer are designed for by the creator that if I violate that creation, it goes very poorly for the air fryer. Do you, know, do you know what I'm saying? The designer of us, he's designed us very specifically, and we can try to get creative with it, but ultimately it goes against our flourishing. And I want to start with just a simple one, which is the physiological way that we are wired as it relates to sex, to sexual identity, to sexual relationship. You may or may not know this, maybe you do. First service, we had an anatomy teacher from Centennial High School, so I had to make sure I was getting it right. But when sex is happening between a man and a woman, there is a chemical that is released in your brain. Does anybody know this? Oxytocin, okay? That oxytocin, it is very specifically heightened in a female, more so than even in a male. And it's called the attachment chemical. The only other time that a female will experience this level of oxytocin in her life is while breastfeeding her child. It's the same chemical. It connects us to each other. And so this whole idea of friends with benefits, you can call it whatever you want, but you can't call it science. For a population that is embracing science, you have to acknowledge that scientifically, and look, you can say it's evolution, and it's still wrong because you are violating the way that your bodies are wired to be. I say that it is the way that we were designed, and in God's mercy and in God's grace, those chemicals that are related and created to us is supposed to create an attachment from me to her and from her to me. It is a physiological design that God put inside of us. The second one is very simply relational. You see, in the sexual revolution in the 70s and the 80s, the idea was that we could do this completely unmoored from morals, completely unmoored from any sort of taboo, and that it was all cultural. But what it's really saying is this. When Shannon and I were married, I mean, when you think about it, in, in, in sex with your spouse, you are as vulnerable as you are at any point in your life ever. But if it's just saying I want Shannon for sex, then what I'm saying is I want her body, but I don't want you. Outside of marriage, that's what I'm saying. Inside of marriage, I'm saying I want you. I want your life. I want your love, your relationship. I'm giving that to you. I'm giving you my name. I'm giving you my finances. I'm giving you everything about me. The reason that Tone Loke, the great poet, anybody laughing, I know how old you are, is not just what happens when bodies start, it, it's not the wild thing, it's you are, Martin knows, you are coming into relationship with each other and anything different than that completely rejects reality. I want your body, I don't want you. The Western ethic for sex says consent is the line that we can't cross. That that is the Western catechism, so to speak, for sex, is as long as two people consent, then what's wrong with it? The Bible says that is way too low of a standard. And let's be honest, much and where we are as a culture right now 
is that consent was the standard, but nobody knows what consent means. Is it a handshake? Is it a high five? Do I need to sign a contract? Do we, uh, the lines keep moving, but Bible says consent isn't that. It's covenant, not consent. Covenant is a way higher standard, not a lower standard. Covenant elevates the purpose of sex, doesn't lower it. And I think the third reason, and that's why covenant is so important, is that the Bible explicitly uses spiritual language in the new covenant as to what sex actually means purposefully, not just physiologically, not just relationally, but spiritually. Paul uses language that says that what we experience in intimacy, in the moments, and if you've been in a bad situation, this, this feels maybe uncomfortable for you, but understand, because you knew that wasn't right, you at least know there was a standard that you could hold to that was violated for you. But in that standard, when it is met, it is a picture of eternity, Ephesians 4, Romans something, Romans, I can't remember the chapter. Both chapters talk about that that intimacy in marriage is the closest we're going to come this side of heaven to what the intimacy with God in eternity is. It's a picture of what he wanted us to, it's a glimpse, a picture, a pretext of what eternity would be like for us. So that yesterday when uh, Micah and Lauren uh, were married. We got to do the wedding yesterday. The trumpet did not sound, which meant they beat the rapture. Do you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Right? But even had they have not, <laughs> whatever is on the other side in heaven, they actually wouldn't have been disappointed. I mean, in the moment they would have been like, oh, the trumpet. Oh, seriously. <laughs> One more hour, God. Seriously, could you not? But, but whatever is on the other side is so much better that that doesn't even compare to it. It's just a glimpse of the future of it. Now I'm going to say this. I'm going to go back to the original question, which is why is it a sin against God instead of a sin against just Potiphar? I'm a father of uh, four children, three of whom are daughters, right? We've got three coop daughters here. There was a, a country, uh, this has happened actually a couple of times in countries, if I'm being honest, uh, and so I won't say what they are, but when my 25-year-old daughter, this is one I'm specifically remembering, uh, a, a young man uh, put his arm around her in a way that I did not appreciate, fully appreciate at all. I, I wanted him dead. And so I... It was like the drape over, and I'm like, okay. So I... Um, I, I placed him on the wall and the translator was like, look, I, I need you to somehow tell him that it's going to take a search and rescue team to pull my fist out of his throat if he ever does that to my daughter again. And I meant every word of it. And it's happened in a couple other places, but... But here's the thing. Was he sinning against my daughter? Yes, 100%. And you know what he was sinning against? Her father, her creator, the one who loves her, the one who's called to protect her. Now, who are you and who are I? We are children of God. You are sons and daughters of God. If you violate, if you harm someone 
physiologically, because now the attachment's broken. If you assault them, if you touch them inappropriately, you say, I want your body, but I don't want your relationship, and that's my daughter, let me tell you, hell is coming with me, and I'm coming for you. That's the, the, the you have sinned against me. That is the sin against Potiphar's wife, who was a daughter of God, who God loved while we were yet still sinners. Christ died for her. And it was a sin against Joseph, his design, God's son. And by the way, we'll get to it in a minute, but that's why the cross is so important. But that's why he says it was wickedness against God because now I am not just getting what I want. I am now harming her, a child of God. I am now harming him, a child of God. And if you're the father of all the children, all the children harming each other, and you all love them all individually, uniquely, and perfectly, again, that's where the cross comes in. But outside of that, that is why it is not just a sin against the person that has been harmed. It is a sin against them, and it is a sin against God. And the anger that God has for that has to be taken care of somewhere, and it's taken care of on the cross and for those of us who will receive that forgiveness. The second thing that I want to hit in the few minutes we have left is that when you decide to live that way in this culture, especially we're in right now, I have said a half a dozen things right now. Uh, Sex between a man and a woman. Uh, I'm talking about gender, male and female. I'm talking about sex within the confines of marriage. I'm talking about things that in most places in our country right now would be considered at best naive and old-fashioned, but most likely would be considered hate speech. Now, look, when I was young and we didn't do, we didn't hang this way, we didn't, like, we didn't get invited to the parties. We had a little part, we had a place where I grew up called Beer Can Hill. It was right next to FM Hill. And FM Hill, because in those days we, we didn't have the Spotify, dear God, we didn't have hardly a radio. And where I was at, there was one hill where you could catch a radio signal from Kearney, Nebraska on a clear night. And we would go up there and, and listen, to, you know, listen to the outfield and John Cougar Mellencamp and, you know, and, and become um, inebriated. Um, but I didn't get invited to those parties because I was the Christian kid. But that was the worst that I could be, really the worst that could happen to me then. That's not the worst that's happening now. Look what happened to Joseph. She took his coat away. It meant, remember the coat? He's, this, he's got a coat has got him in trouble twice now. This coat's taken away again. The coat, his power, his job, his position, his authority, taken away from him because he made a decision to follow the precepts and the principles of God. And in the world we're in right now, you have to know that some of the things that the word of God is right on, the word of God is clear on, things that you could make a scientific case for as well as a biblical case for, it is going to cost you in our current climate. It cost Joseph It might cost you career opportunities. It might cost you promotion. It might cost you respect. In Rod Dreher's recent book, uh, Live Not By Lies, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. He he interviewed uh, people who uh, were from Eastern Bloc states 
who uh, are now in their 80s and 90s, who saw how totalitarian governments were coming in and taking over and exactly what happened. And one of the things that he said was that when you interview any one of these, 85, 95, from Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, whatever, they say versions of the same thing, which is that it wasn't that we were being asked to obey laws, it was that we were being asked to live by lies. Our entire culture was set up on a lie, and this is what he said, it's up to us today to take this challenge, to live not by lies, and to speak the truth that defeats evil. How do we do this in a society built on lies? By accepting a life outside the mainstream, courageously defending the truth, and being willing to endure the consequences, these challenges are daunting, but we are blessed with examples from saints who have gone before Joseph being one of them. To live not by lies. Live not by political lies. Live not by uh, legacy corporate media lies. Live not by the cultural lies. Because I'm, I got three daughters. If a young man is, is struggling and confused and wondering about his gender, but he wants to dress like a woman and then compete with my daughter in a track meet, that's a lie, and I'm not going to live by that. We can't live by those lies. Now, how do we do that? Because that sounds like let's get the pitchforks and the torches and head down to the Capitol, and that is not what I'm talking about. Because the question is, what's true about God? We're going to ask this every week, and here's what's true about God, that while Joseph was in the prison, the Lord was with him. He did not allow himself to grow bitter and cynical. He did not allow himself to rage. He did not allow himself to try and overthrow the government. No, the Lord was with him. And while the Lord was with him in the pit, the Lord was with him in the prison. And it was the Lord that brought Joseph favor. It was the Lord that allowed Joseph to rise to what would soon be, we're going to get there in the next week, to the second in command of, of all of Egypt. Not because he was raging. Not because he was afraid. But because even in this prison, he still held to the principles and the precepts of God. And what's true about God is this. He is with you in the pit. He is with you in the prison and he'll be with you in the palace. I want to say one more thing that I would be remiss to not, if I didn't say. You might have noticed that the passage where Joseph fled the temptation. He said he didn't want to be with her. We live in 2020 and we live in the United States and in a room like this, I'm willing to bet that there are a great many people in every service we've had today that Darren, you, that sounds great, but you're about five years too late for that. You're five months too late. You're five weeks too late. Five days too late. I've already blown it. I'm, I'm Potiphar's wife. I'm not Joseph. And I want to offer you some redemption for all of us because Joseph fled from the temptation, from the tempter. But that's not how Jesus, remember Joseph is this beautiful picture of, of Jesus. And if you go to John chapter eight, you see Jesus running to an adulterous woman, not away from her. Is Jesus 
this woman comes to this well and you have this start this conversation. You might remember it. He says, you know, that you, uh, how many wives or how many husbands? She says, well, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, you've said why wisely. You've not had, you've had five and the one you're with right now isn't even your husband. And she said the best words in the Bible, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> but listen to me. What did Jesus say to her? First of all, he called her woman. Not not in a, woman, get me my beer. Woman, the same word he called his mother, a term of respect, a term of endearment. In just that one word, she got more respect in those two seconds than she had gotten in her entire life. And at that moment, the, the Pharisees that had brought her, they brought her and said, I'm going, we, you, he, we just caught her in the act of adultery and she's naked and they brought her completely ashamed, brought her to shame her. And it says Jesus was ignoring them and finally it says he looked up and he said these famous words that he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then it says that he bent over and wrote what Billy Graham says was the only sermon Jesus ever preached. Remember, the same hands, the hands of God that wrote the Ten Commandments, that wrote, do not commit adultery, leans over and starts writing in the sand. Now, we don't know what he wrote, but I wonder if what he began doing was writing the names of everybody that were there, because the actual Greek language doesn't just say write, it actually implies that he was writing against, saying, Darren, and then a picture of Darren's sin. Uh, the next name, another name, and then a, the, a hotel room number, and then maybe it was another name, and it was the website that you were at. Because what it says is one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and left. And at one point, they're all gone, and Jesus looks back to the woman and says, where are your accusers? She said, none, Lord, they're all gone. And he said, then neither do I accuse you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Don't, don't sin anymore. He, did, he wasn't saying that what she was doing wasn't a sin. It was saying that it was a sin, but here's the solution for it. You see, if what would have happened was supposed to happen, happen, they would have brought the man and the woman and the hardcore Pharisees would have stoned the man and woman in the spot. They would have buried him in the ground and they would have planted a tree that would grow into a great and mighty shade tree so that people that would pass by would remember, this sin will get you killed. Here's this tree. But Jesus did not plant a tree that day because he was going to be nailed to a tree so that she could go and sin no more. And so if you're Potiphar's wife and you're not Joseph, understand that the same grace for the woman caught in adultery is for you as well. And it's not just from the penalty of your sin, but it is power over your sins. Young people, believe me when I say this, that the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you is untapped and ready to go to help you to overcome those sins in your life. First John 2, I write this that you don't sin. But if you do sin, understand that you have an advocate. His name is Jesus. And Jesus, the only one left qualified to throw a stone, had no stone in his hand. 
He had an empty hand that would one day have a nail hole in it, and that hand today is extended to you and to me. Stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we leave here today, that we know that, Lord, that this is the cost of the truth, there's cost of us in our culture right now that we might have to face, and Lord, would you just give us the credit to face it with courage, to face it with faith, Lord. We don't have to be afraid. We are not afraid. Lord, we want to do it in love. We are not here to burn the place down. This is not our job. Our job is to overcome evil with good, not with evil. We pray that you, Lord, will give us the strength and the courage for that. We love you so much. Thank you for this promise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.